This episode includes discussions about sexual assault, murder, necrophilia, and cannibalism. Listener discretion is advised. Today we are covering the infamous serial killer Edmund M.L. Kemper III, who was the inspiration behind the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Ed Kemper, born December 18, 1948, also known as the Co-Ed Killer, is an American serial killer who was active in the early 1970s. Kemper was born in Burbank, California, to Clarnell Stage and Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. He was very intelligent with an IQ of 136, however, he displayed sociopathic behavior from a young age. He tortured and killed animals, acted out in bizarre sexual rituals with his sister's dolls, and once said that, in order to kiss a teacher he had a crush on, he would have to kill her. He also recalled that as a young boy, he would sneak out of his house and armed with his father's bayonet, go to his second grade teacher's house to watch her through the windows. He stated in later interviews that some of his favorite games to play as a child were gas chamber and electric chair, in which he asked his younger sister to tie him up and flip an imaginary switch. He would then tumble over and writhe on the floor, pretending that he was being executed by gas inhalation or electric shock. He also had near-death experiences as a child, once when his elder sister tried to push him in front of a train, and another time when she successfully pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool where he almost drowned. Kemper had a close relationship with his father and was devastated when his parents separated in 1957, causing him to be raised by Clarnell in Helena, Montana. He had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who frequently belittled, humiliated, and abused him. Clarnell often made her son sleep in a locked basement because she feared that he would harm his sisters, regularly mocked him for his large size. He stood 6 feet 4 inches by the age of 15 and derided him as a real weirdo. She also refused to show him any affection out of fear that she would turn him gay and told the young Kemper that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Kemper later described her as a sick and angry woman and it has been postulated that she suffered from borderline personality disorder. At the age of 14, Kemper ran away from his home in an attempt to reconcile with his father in Van Nuys, California. Once there, he learned that his father had remarried and had a stepson. Kemper stayed with his father for a short while until the elder Kemper sent him to live with his paternal grandparents who lived on a ranch in the mountains of North Fork, California. Kemper hated living in North Fork. He described his grandfather as senile and said that his grandmother was, quote, constantly emasculating me and my grandfather. On August 27, 1964, at the age of 15, Kemper was sitting at the kitchen table with his grandmother Maud Matilda Huey Kemper when they had an argument. Enraged, Kemper stormed off and retrieved a rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting. The rifle had been confiscated because he used it to shoot animals. He then re-entered the kitchen and fatally shot his grandmother in the head before firing twice more into her back. His grandmother's last words were, quote, Oh, you better not be shooting those birds again. Some accounts mention that she also suffered multiple post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. 
When Kemper's grandfather, Edmund Emil Kemper, returned from grocery shopping, Kemper went outside and fatally shot him in the driveway next to his car. He was unsure of what to do next, so he phoned his mother who told him to contact the local police. Kemper called the police and waited to be taken into custody. After his arrest, Kemper said that he, quote, just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma, unquote and testify that he killed his grandfather so that he would not have to find out that his wife was dead and that he would be angry with Kemper for what he'd done. Psychiatrist Donald Lund, who interviewed Kemper during adulthood, wrote, quote, in his way, he had avenged the rejection of both his father and his mother, unquote. Kemper's crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit, and court psychiatrists diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, then sent him to Atascadero State Hospital, a maximum security facility that housed as mentally ill convicts. Atascadero, California Youth Authority, psychiatrists and social workers disagreed with the court's psychiatrist diagnosis. Their reports say that Kemper showed, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking, end quote. They also observed him to be intelligent and introspective. Initial testing measured his IQ at 136, over two standard deviations above average. He was re-diagnosed with a less severe condition, a, quote, personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type, end quote. Later on in his time at Atacasero, Kemper was given another IQ test, which gave a higher result of 145. Kemper endeared himself to his psychiatrist by being a model prisoner and was trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. One of his psychiatrists later said, quote, he was a very good worker and this is not typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work, end quote. Kemper also became a member of the JCs while in Atascadero and said he developed, quote, some new tests and some new scales on the Minnesota multi-phase personality inventory, end quote, specifically an overt hostility scale during his work with Atascadero psychiatrists. After his second arrest, Kemper said that being able to understand how these tests functioned allowed him to manipulate his psychiatrist and admitted later that he learned a lot from the sex offenders to whom he administered tests. For example, they told him that to avoid leaving witnesses, it was best to kill a woman after raping her. On December 18, 1969, his 21st birthday, Kemper was released on parole from Atascadero. Against the recommendations of psychiatrists at the hospital, he was released into the care of his mother, Clarnell, who had remarried, taken the surname Strandberg, and then divorced again. At 609A Ord Street, Aptos, California, a short drive from where she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Kemper later demonstrated further to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated and on November 29, 1972, his juvenile records were permanently expunged. The last report from his probation psychiatrist read, quote, If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illness. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society, and since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expansion of his juvenile records. 
While staying with his mother, Kemper attended community college in accordance with his parole requirements and had hoped he would become a police officer. Though he was rejected because of his size at the time of his release from Atascadero, Kemper stood six feet nine inches tall, which led to his nickname, quote, Big Ed. Kemper maintained relationships with Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection to join the force and become a self-described friendly nuisance at a bar called the Jury Room, a popular hangout for local law enforcement officers. Kemper worked a series of menial jobs before gaining employment at the State of California Division of Highways, now known as the California Department of Transportation. During this time, his relationship with Clarnell remained toxic and hostile, the two having frequent arguments that their neighbors often overheard. Kemper later described the arguments he had had with his mother around this time, stating the following. My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I should have had my teeth cleaned. When he had saved enough money, Kemper moved out to live with his friend in Alameda, California. There he still complained of being unable to get away from his mother because she regularly phoned him and paid him surprise visits. He often had financial difficulties, which resulted in his frequent returning to his mother's apartment in Aptis. At a Santa Cruz beach, Kemper met a student from Turlock High School to whom he became engaged in March 1973. The engagement was broken off after Kemper's second arrest, and his fiancé's parents requested her name not to be revealed to the public. The same year that he had began working for the highway division, Kemper was hit by a car while riding a motorcycle that he had recently purchased. His arm was badly injured in the crash, and he received a $15,000 settlement in the civil suit he filed against the car's driver. As he was driving around in the 1969 Ford Galaxy he bought with part of his settlement money, he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking and began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. He then began picking up young women and peacefully letting them go. According to Kemper, he picked up around 150 such hitchhikers before he felt homicidal sexual urges, which he called his little zapples, and began acting on them. Between May 1972 and April 1973, Kemper killed eight people. He would pick up female students who were hitchhiking and take them to isolated areas where he would shoot, stab, smother, or strangle them. He would then take their bodies back to his home where he decapitated them, performed irumatio on their severed heads, had sexual intercourse with their corpses, and then dismembered them. During this 11-month murder spree, he killed five college students, one in high school, his mother, and his mother's best friend. Kemper has stated in interviews that he often searched for victims after having arguments with his mother and that she refused to introduce him to women attending the university where she worked. He recalled, she would say, you're just like your father, you don't deserve to get to know them. Psychiatrists and Kemper himself exposed the belief that the young women were surrogates for his ultimate target his mother. On May 7, 1972, Kemper was driving in Berkeley, California when he picked up two 18-year-old hitchhiking students from Fresno State University, Mary Ann Pisha and Anita Mary Luchessa, with the pretense of taking them to Stanford University. After driving for an hour, he managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda, California, with which he was familiar from his work at the highway department without alerting his passengers that he had changed directions from where they wanted to go. It was there that he handcuffed Pisha 
and locked Luchessa in the trunk, then stabbed and strangled Pisha to death, subsequently killing Luchessa in a similar manner. Kemper later confessed that while handcuffing Pisha, he, quote, brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him, end quote, adding that he said, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that, after gazing her breasts despite murdering her minutes later. Kemper put both of the women's bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. He was stopped on the way by police for having a broken taillight, but the officer did not detect the corpses in the car. Kemper's roommate was not at home, so he took the bodies into his apartment, where he photographed them and had sexual intercourse with the naked corpse before dismembering them. He then put body parts into plastic bags, which he later abandoned near Loma Prieta Mountain, before disposing of Pisha's and Luchessa's severed heads in a ravine. Kemper engaged in irumatio with both of them. In August of that year, Marianne's skull was found on Loma Prieta Mountain, and an extensive search failed to turn up the rest of Marianne's remains or a trace of Luchessa's. On the evening of September 14, 1972, Kemper picked up a 15-year-old dance student named Aiko Ku, who had decided to hitchhike to a dance class after missing her bus. He again drove to a remote area where he pulled a gun on Ku before accidentally locking himself out of his car. However, Ku let him back inside, despite the fact that the gun was still in the car. Back inside the car, he proceeded to choke her unconscious, rape her, and kill her. Kemper subsequently packed Ku's body in the trunk of his car and went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks, then returned to his apartment. He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of his car, quote, admiring his catch like a fisherman. Back at his apartment, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse, then dismembered and disposed of the remains in a similar manner as his previous two victims. Ku's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put hundreds of flyers up asking for information, but she did not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or status. On January 7, 1973, Kemper, who had moved back in with his mother, was driving around the Cabrillo College campus when he picked up an 18-year-old student, Cynthia Ann, or Cindy, Shaw. He drove to a wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car and drove to his mother's house, where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. When his mother left for work the next morning, he had sexual intercourse and removed the bullet from Shaw's corpse, then dismembered and decapitated her in his mother's bathtub. Kemper kept Shaw's severed head for several days, regularly engaging in irumatio with it. Then he buried it in his mother's garden facing upward toward her bedroom. After his arrest, he stated that he did this because his mother, quote, always wanted people to look up to her, end quote. He discarded the rest of Shaw's remains by throwing them off a cliff. Over the course of the following few weeks, all except her head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a disturbing jigsaw puzzle. A pathologist determined that Shaw had been cut into pieces with a power saw. On February 5, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Kemper left his house in search of possible victims. With heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area, students were advised to accept rides only from cars with university stickers on them. Kemper had been able to obtain such a sticker as his mother worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen Allison Liu on the UCSC campus. According to Kemper, Thorpe entered his car first, reassuring Liu to also enter. 
He first fatally shot Thorpe and then Liu with his 22 caliber pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. Kemper again brought his victims back to his mother's house. This time, he beheaded them in his car and carried the headless corpses into his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. He dismembered their bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and discarded their remains the next morning. Some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later, and more were found near Highway 1 in March. One question in an interview as to why he decapitated his victims, he explained, quote, The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, the eyes, the mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. End quote. On April 20th, 1973, after coming home from a party, 52-year-old Clarnell Elizabeth Strandberg awakened her son with her arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Kemper entered her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Kemper replied, No, good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep, where he snuck back into her room to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a pen knife. He then decapitated her and engaged in irrimatio with her severed head, then used it as a dartboard. Kemper stated that he, quote, put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour, threw darts at it, and ultimately smashed her face in, end quote. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and put them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back into the sink. Kemper later said that seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Kemper then hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went to drink at a nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Hallett, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When Hallett arrived, Kemper strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Hallett had gone away together on vacation. He subsequently put Hallett's corpse in a closet, obscured any outward signs of disturbance, and left a note to the police. It read, quote, Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete. Gents, just a lack of time. I got things to do. End quote. Afterward, Kemper fled the scene. He drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for the over 1,000-mile trip. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car, and he believed he was the target of an active manhunt. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Hallett when he arrived in Pueblo, he found a phone booth and called police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Hallett, but the police did not take his call seriously and told him to call back at a later time. Time. Several hours later, Kemper called again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He confessed to that officer of killing his mother in Hallett, then waited for police to arrive and take him into custody, where he also confessed to the murders of the six students. When asked later in an interview why he turned himself in, Kemper said, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't have handled it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing, and at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. 
Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. On May 7, 1973, he was assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, attorney Jim Jackson. Due to Kemper's explicit and detailed confession, his counsel's only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges. Kemper twice tried to commit suicide in custody. His trial went ahead on October 23, 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he was once psychotic. Fort also interviewed Kemper, including under truth serum, and relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of his victims, then cooked and consumed these strips of flesh in a casserole. Nevertheless, Fort determined that Kemper was fully cognizant in each case and stated that Kemper and enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Kemper later recanted the confession of cannibalism. California used the Monoton Standard, which held that for a defendant to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defective reason from disease of mind and not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know he was doing what was wrong. Kemper appeared to have known that the nature of his acts was wrong, and he had shown signs of malice aforethought. On November 1st, Kemper took a stand. He testified that he killed the victims because he wanted them, quote, for myself, like possessions, end quote, and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could have been committed only by someone with an aberrant mind. He said that two beings inhabited his body and that when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. On November 8th, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. However, with a moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count. With these terms, to be served concurrently, and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. In the California Medical Facility, Kemper was incarcerated in the same prison block as other notorious criminals such as Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. Kemper showed particular disdain for Mullen, who committed his murders at the same time and in the same area as Kemper. He described Mullen as just a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody he saw for no good reason. Kemper manipulated and physically intimidated Mullen, who at 5 feet 9 inches was more than a foot shorter than Kemper. Kemper stated that Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody tried to watch TV. So I threw some water on him to shut him up. Then when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. Kemper remains among the general population in prison and is considered a model prisoner. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. He was also a prolific reader of audiobooks for the blind. A 1987 Los Angeles Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prison's program and he had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books with several hundred completed recordings to his name. He was retired from these positions in 2015 after he experienced a stroke and was declared medically disabled. He received his first rules violation report in 2016 for failing to provide a urine sample.
While imprisoned, Kemper has participated in a number of interviews, including a segment in the 1982 documentary The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in the 1984 documentary Murder, No Apparent Motive. His interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers. FBI profiler John Douglas described Kemper as, quote, among the brightest prison inmates he interviewed and capable of rare insight for a violent criminal, end quote. Kemper is forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and has stated that he participated in the interviews to save others, like himself, from killing. At the end of his murder, no apparent motive interview, he said, There's somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people, and wants to, and rages inside and struggles with that feeling, or is so sure they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped once it starts. He also conducted an interview with French writer Stéphane Bergouin in 1991. Kemper was first eligible for parole in 1979. He was denied parole that year, as well as parole hearings in 1980, 1981, and 1982. He subsequently waived his right to a hearing in 1985. He was denied parole at his 1988 hearing, where he said, quote, Society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault them for that, end quote. He was denied parole again in 1991 and in 1994. He then waived his right to a hearing in 1997 and in 2002. He attended the next hearing in 2007, where he was again denied parole. Prosecutor Ariadne Simmons said, We don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes. Kemper waived his right to a hearing again in 2012. He was denied parole in 2017. His next eligible parole is in 2024. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podtoons. Podtoons is updated on a weekly basis, so be sure to tune in next week.